Good morning from Washington, D.C., where COVID-19 continues to hamstring attempts to restart the city's economy. Mayor Muriel Bowser has required 15 straight days of declining virus infection before phase three can begin. That index was reset over the weekend following a small increase in virus cases in the city, mimicking those around the country. My name is Paul Kincaid. I'm director of congressional outreach here at FMC. Thank you all for joining us this morning for our virtual roundtable, which we've featured every Thursday as part of our congressional study groups. The study groups are four legislative exchanges focused on Japan, Germany, Korea, and the European continent. They were founded to help further the mission of FMC to protect our democracy by improving Congress, particularly in its international development. It was also created to allow our international trading partners and allies to interact better with Congress, and that's part of the opportunity that we hope to provide this morning. Of course, like I said, we want this to be interactive. We welcome your questions, and if you'd like to ask our guest or our moderator a question, simply move the arrow down to the bottom of your screen and select the Q&A button. Put in your name and your question, and if your question is selected, you'll be on live with our panel on audio only to ask the question. Don't worry, we won't be using your camera today. With that, I'd like to introduce our honored guest for a special, more intimate virtual roundtable. Senator Pat Roberts has represented his native Kansas in the United States <laughs> Congress since 1981. After serving his predecessor, Congressman Keith Sebelius, for 11 years, Roberts was elected as a Republican to serve Kansas's big first district, which encompasses most of the western half of the state. For 16 years, he served in the House, including chairing the Agriculture Committee, before being elected to the U.S. Senate in 1996. Since then, he's chaired the Senate Intelligence and Ethics Committees and now sits in charge of the Committee on Agriculture, Nutrition, and Forestry. In January of last year, Senator Roberts announced his retirement, creating what is a surprisingly competitive race in Kansas to replace him. Our conversation will be a little different this morning. It won't be between moderator and panelists about a specific subject, but between two old friends, hopefully discussing a wide variety of what they've both seen over the years. Former Secretary of Agriculture Dan Glickman is a native of the Sunflower State. He's from Wichita. After working as a lawyer for the Securities and Exchange Commission, he was elected to the U.S. House as a Democrat, serving the 4th Congressional District from 1977 to 1995. He chaired the Select Committee on Intelligence before becoming Secretary of Agriculture in 1995, serving throughout President Clinton's second term. He then succeeded the legendary Jack Valenti as head of the Motion Picture Association of America and remains active in both political and educational endeavors, serving with various universities and nonprofits, including here at FMC. Today, we'll look forward to an interesting discussion between them. And with that, I'll turn it over to Secretary Glickman. The floor is yours. Oh, I got the floor. Okay. Well, that means that Roberts won't have much to say, which is probably very unusual. But uh, I would say that uh, Pat and I have been uh, friends for 40 years, because when I first came to Congress, Pat was the senior aide to Congressman Keith Sebelius, one of the great men of the history of the U.S. Congress, and whose uh, daughter-in-law became the governor of Kansas and secretary of health and human services. But Pat, has been, uh, I think you're the only person in history that's been chairman of both the Senate and the House Agriculture Committees, in addition to the Senate, chairman of the Senate Ethics Committee, and the, um, what's the other committee you were chairman of? Uh, Intelligence. Uh, Intel and Ag. Intel and Ag. So, so any event. Um, um, emerging threats too, emerging threats, don't forget emerging that. Emerging threats, okay, anyway. So it's great to have you, Pat. You, you have a, you have a record that um, certainly in our state of Kansas is is unequaled. I don't know if you're the longest running elected federal legislator that we've had. Are you or are you close? 40 years is, is a long time. Anybody beat you in the state? Well, Dan, um, that's classified. Uh, Bob Dole served 36 years and this will be my 40th. I'm trying to keep that, uh, you know, hush hush, you know, and I, I haven't told him that. By the way, I thought he was going to MC this. How'd you get roped into this? Well, uh, he he got a better deal, so I oh. I, I I got this deal, you know, because they're paying me a lot of money to interview you. So I wanted you to be aware of that. So let me just ask you just a couple questions before we go to things. I mean, you've 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 uh, had this amazing career, and um, if if you were talking to a new member of Congress now who's coming in for the first time, what what what's what can you tell them that's unique to your experience after 40 years that might help people as they engage in this institution of Congress that, that's, you know, the atmosphere is toxic. And an interesting thing about Pat, which I'd like to just say is, is that um, uh, 
Pat has a bipartisan streak, strong bipartisan streak. I remember in 1996, the farm bill that was going on and Newt Gingrich was pushing to pull food stamps out of the farm bill. And it was your involvement that said, if you do that, you're gonna lose the bill. And uh, so to a lot of people, you became a hero to the anti-hunger community. So here there's this conservative farm state legislator working on wheat and corn and cattle that actually probably saved the SNAP program. Um, and then you did the same thing with global hunger issues with the World Food Program. So I, I, you know, I did two examples of, of things that maybe not everybody knows about you, but how, what would you say to new people coming in about your life and how, what the place ought to look like? Well, number one, I don't say, I don't try to say anything to anybody coming in because most of them who are coming in, I think they know it all. And uh, I don't want to be, you know, contrary with them. But uh, my advice uh, uh, to the new Democrat that came in in the old third district, I guess it's still the, the, uh, the third district up there in Johnson County, Sharice, and um, a very unique member of Congress, and then uh, several others, and uh, they have come over and we just sit down and visited and they ask, uh, what would you advise? I said, I go a little easy uh, on making speeches on the floor. You never get hurt by what you don't say. That was the advice of Senator Frank Carlson, my first boss, and then Keith Sebelius as well. Uh, so that's a pretty good uh, admonition right off the bat. I think new members have a tendency to uh, really join in thinking that if they enter into virtually every debate and uh, uh, now it tends to be highly partisan and uh, you don't have to do that. You, you settle back and you do your committee work. Uh, I knew that uh, I was sentenced to the Ag Committee. Uh, that was a very pleasant sentence, by the way. But um, I knew that really uh, I, I had a lot on my plate. I had to get a farm bill done. And um, this is down the road, but uh, to be a member, that's when Kika de la Garza was chairman. You remember those days and you were on the committee at the same time. We did work together. Matter of fact, you helped me out on my first amendment, the uh, Farmer Cost of Production Board. And you came around and said, um, the three on our side are gonna get after you because they don't think a Republican ought to have an amendment in their first uh, you know, freshman year. Uh, that meant a lot to me at that time, sort of forged an alliance that we had uh, down through the years to put partisanship behind. That's one thing that is really uh, uh, pretty tough these days. When I first came to the Senate, um, the two people I admire the most uh, were Danny Inouye and uh, Ted Stevens. They were giants in the Senate and it didn't make much difference who was chairman. It just, they kept right on in behalf of their, of our, uh, our nation's national security. Uh, that has sort of disappeared in the Senate today, and I worry about it a lot. Well, I worried about the the entire Congress. I have a letter here from the same organization, the former members of Congress, and I was going to respond to it. And then I decided I probably didn't have enough time to do that. That was an excuse. There's 49 Democrats, 19 Republicans, and I note that they have indicated that the problem with the filibuster is uh, is the reason the Congress doesn't get along. Uh, I don't think that's really true. I think it's a bipartisan thing, but um, there's a lot of reasons that I would, uh, I might make a, uh, an audio speech where um, I list about four or five things that I think we should do to make this a better place. But in the end result, Dan, uh, we're all here to represent different areas of the country. And I think we reflect right now the real balkanization we see in our country, most unfortunate, but that's where we are. So um, uh, right now we're sitting, um, uh, this problem with the COVID-19 coronavirus crisis, it's impacting everybody in the country from farmers to small business people to you know, jobs and big companies. And, and the, we see this rapid increase in unemployment and the poor particularly getting impacted by this thing. And it's, it's something that we didn't anticipate what, what do you think, do you think, are you satisfied with the government's response to this? What do you think we ought to be doing? To, and Because it may go on for another year or two, for all we know. Um, well, in the first place, I don't know. But in the second place, as to, you know, when we, when we whip this thing, 
uh, I even go back to the Eisenhower administration where finally Jonas Salk uh, saved us from polio. I, I guess, I don't guess, I know reportedly uh, when he met uh, uh, Mr. Salk or Dr. Salk, uh, he got up and said, I don't have any words. It's, it's hard to find words to even say to you uh, to express the gratitude of, of our country. And I, I remember those days as a kid, I'm now an octogenarian, by the way, social chairman for the octogenarian caucus. The good news is that we don't, we don't do anything. So I don't obviously have to do anything. But I remember back then, I, I, this is a situation where we're gonna have to wait on the vaccine. We're gonna have to, uh, you know, we have to go through these things. Uh, we are working at warp speed, uh, according to the president. Until that happens, I think all these side arguments or side discussions, I think they're essential to what we're trying to do. The number one issue right now is schools. When do we, well, maybe that, maybe it's, uh, you know, professional sports, I don't know, or college sports. And, uh, but that's that. Whether or not those elementary kids get to go to school and not miss a whole day, uh, I don't think too many of them are really uh, in a position where they can do it um, by Zoom like we're doing here now or, you know, virtually. So I, um, I worry about a lot. Uh, I think, however, that, that decision lies with the governor and for that matter, mayors of cities, et cetera, et cetera, state legislature. We can advise all we want back here and make speeches all we want, but they're the ones that are going to make the decision. I, I'm, I'm going to add real quick that I am very impressed with Governor Kelly in Kansas. Uh, I didn't know her that well. We know each other now real well. Uh, she suggested that she's Bonnie and I'm Clyde, but I'm trying to help her out uh, with all of the uh, masks and uh, all the PPE, as we say, that we needed. We just didn't have enough out in uh, our rural and small town areas and agriculture was suffering with the meat plants, the backup of all sorts of food. I think people were finally discovering that uh, our food doesn't come from grocery stores. And uh, so we've come through a real bad patch, but um, now the issue seems to be uh, whether or not we open up schools. I deeply regret that even that, the pandemic has been uh, politicized. Everything is political. And uh, I don't know how we get out of that except to get out of it and uh, try the best we can. I've always tried to stay away from the partisan speeches on the floor. Uh, I, I made a few in the house. But if you're counting votes and you and you do that, uh, you don't get many votes for your amendment or a bill that you're trying to get through. Uh, that doesn't mean that I don't have strong feelings. But I, I think today I don't think you would add much with, uh, you know, saying things on the floor that would be partisan. Now that is a long, long answer to a, a very good question. Well, let me two things. Number one, I got one comment from a former member. I won't say who it is. It says, Pat, you're looking more and more like Dwight Eisenhower every day. Well, thank you. I've got I've got Ike over here, uh, standing at semi attention. Uh, I've got his bust over here. I uh, have the Marine Corps flag, have the Kansas flag, have the big first flag, uh, you know, the big red one out in Kansas. Uh, we're going to dedicate the Eisenhower Memorial. I'm chairman of that outfit, and it's taken us 24 years to do it. Um, boy, you do things like this. It just is such a a difficult road. You got to have great staff. You got to have a lot of support from uh, both Democrats and Republicans. So September 17, isn't it, Amber? 17. <clears throat> we will dedicate that memorial. And I don't care where we are on the virus. We will dedicate that memorial if we have to be uh, 10 yards apart. Well, we're going to do that. You're invited, of course, and everybody that's listening to us uh, is invited. You know, come on down. Amber shaking her head you know, no, but at uh, any rate, that, uh, that's going to be a special time. Amber, I can say that because not many of them are going to be in Washington. Uh, but uh, that's going to be a special time. Uh, finally, a memorial to a man who saved Western democracy in Europe, uh, de uh, defeated the Nazis, uh, and then uh, provided uh, eight years of peace and prosperity. Uh, he's moving up the ranks in terms of great presence, and it's time we have the memorial. And thanks to Bob Dole, by the way, for... Uh, helping with regards to all, all the finances. Well, you know, okay, so speaking of Dole, who uh, is obviously one of the great le legacies and legends of the state of Kansas in the political scene, but Dole and you, and to some extent me, and 
others, Jim Slattery, and there are a lot of other folks have always worked to not only support agriculture, but to support the hungry. And I wonder if you might talk a little bit about this coalition, this urban rural coalition that we've McGovern, uh, uh, George McGovern, Bob Dole, yourself, and others so over the years where, uh, you know, the farmers have been very much a part of agriculture and food policy, but we made sure that there was a, there was room for those who are needy or hungry, and whether it was the SNAP program, the school meals program. Bob Dole has recently talked, wrote an article about a pandemic response to school meals, uh, how to get that. I wonder if you might talk about it because it's a great example of a coalition that's developed over the years that strikes me we need more of in this country. I don't know how many times uh, I have said uh, in behalf of our producers, uh, farmers, ranchers, and growers, uh, we're feeding America with the best quality food at the lowest price in the history of the world. And then also a troubled and hungry wor uh, world. And I don't know how many times I've said that. You probably said at least a thousand times too, uh, being secretary of, the, uh, of agriculture and, uh, and doing a good job, by the way. And, uh, but that just naturally flows. It's been a partnership uh, ever since the food stamp program. You mentioned the Gingrich years. That is true. Uh, it was pretty, it was, it was, it's plain and simple. If you don't uh, be fair to the food stamp program and all that that embodies, you're not going to have enough support past farm bill. So counting votes, you better, you know, that's probably first. And then second, it's the right thing to do. Maybe I would go back and say the right thing to do is first thing. But uh, I, God knows how many uh, schools I've been to uh, eating school lunches. Uh, my biggest concern was to give the folks that do that, that, that are just uh, underwater with regulations. And so we had, a, we've had a lot of regulatory relief uh, to the people who run the food stamp program at the school level. Uh, it's been a wonderful partnership. Um, <laughs> I remember talking to a member of the Black Caucus in the House when I was trying to get people to vote for the Farm Bill. This was Freedom to Farm. This is the we turned the farm program upside down. You remember that you were ag secretary then and we stopped paying farmers for not growing anything and went to direct payments. Then they doubled and that wasn't what I had in mind, but at any rate, it is still the point that farmers do not plant according to the government. Uh, I might put tariffs in there and say that, and also uh, uh, disaster payments uh, with this administration. But for the most part, the farmer can make that decision himself. Uh, I'm very proud of that particular act, and we still have that in place. But if you don't have that marriage between, it's not a shotgun you know, marriage, it's a real working together uh, of the awards that I have received. I'm not trying to brag here, but an awful lot of them are from the hunger folks. Uh, that's my you know, pet name for them. And they do a, a, a great job. They have a great motive. And uh, I think it's something that will hopefully work together down through the years. There are some Republicans, uh, quite frankly, uh, that bill passed with 87 votes, this last farm bill. That's a record. That's due to uh, Senator Stabon and I working together with our staffs working together, no surprises, uh, truly working together. But there was a group in the Freedom Caucus over there, you know, bless their hearts, uh, who wouldn't support the bill uh, without some drastic changes in the food stamp program, which not only would have been counterproductive, but would have, uh, you know, uh, shot the bill down. And there are some Republicans who don't believe we should even have farm bill. Now, there are some Democrats, too, but not as many. So you talk about Senator Stabenow, and this, again, is a it's a great uh, political marriage you have with her. And how, how have you been able to work in without talking about, uh, by the way, you have a lovely wife, frankly, Frankie. So this is not a, a real marriage. Uh, thank, thank God that there's Frankie in this marriage with you is all I can say. You but, haven't mentioned, you haven't mentioned my daughter, Ashley, who had a flower that she wanted you to smell on the house floor. And it was a squirt gun. Yeah. Well, I forgot about she that. Got you. <laughs> yeah, she, she got, got you. Me. But you, you have this great relationship with Debbie Stabenow of Michigan. Um, and um, uh, you work together, you seem to be collegial, you may have some disagreements on, on time, uh, time to time, but 
but you don't have the battles that I see so many other places in Congress now between chairman and ranking members. Why is that? How have you been able to do that? Well, she knew, this, this wasn't our first rodeo. We did the same thing when I was ranking and she was chairperson back in 214. That, that bill ran into a real brick wall over in the House. Uh, it was John Boehner who didn't like the dairy policy. He's never liked the dairy policy. So we knew at that particular time that uh, if we work together with the responsibility of getting a farm bill done, I mean, after all, you're working there for farmers, ranchers, and growers, and then everybody on the consumer side as well, uh, plus the feeding programs. You got to get this done. Uh, you can sit back and insist on everything you want, but you know that's not going to happen. She didn't get everything she wanted. I didn't get everything I wanted. We, we both knew that. Uh, so you have a situation where you agree that our top goal through hearings around the country, working together, appearing together, which we did at K-State, by the way, that's uh, where we started, ended up in Michigan State. I wore green, she wore purple, and um, we just worked together. Uh, it's also important to insist that our staff works get, uh, work together. I think I just went off the Zoom, probably you're talking. Back, you're, you're back on, you're back on. I'm back on, okay. Uh, but we had, a, a, we had an agreement, no surprises. No press releases that the other one don't, uh, you know, doesn't know about. Um, our staffs work together. Uh, we will insist that they work together. And then we had uh, uh, Colin Peterson over there on, on the House side, and then uh, the uh, Republican chairman over there as well. Uh, he had some different ideas, but we just had to get the bill done. And uh, so we kept working and working, and eventually you get a compromise, and then it happens. And then uh, that's a heck of a lot better than arguing and not getting the bill. Yeah, because, uh, you know, I mean, I, I, I see some committees working together pretty well, chairman and ranking members, but I see other committees uh, have become ex extraordinarily politicized and a lot of it is outside their control, but it creates the image that Congress just can't work. And uh, I guess what I see from you and, and Stabenow is you have proven, at least in this area, it can work. Well, we have a constituency that I think everybody should love. Uh, everybody, I think, remembers farming like the Saturday Evening Post. Uh, but uh, farming is such a high-tech, uh, uh, really uh, complicated uh, way to make a living today. You have to have access to all the technology and, uh, and precision agriculture. But yet again, it's a miracle what we do uh, to feed a, a, a troubled and hungry world. Uh, I just wish we had an export policy that made or trade policy that uh, made a little more sense. So I, I just got to ask you this because I, I go back to this other thing I mentioned where you uh, sent out, a, you got every member of Congress and every member of the Senate to sign this letter supporting the World Food Program. It, I don't remember exactly when that was, but what was it? Nine, you got a hundred vote, a hundred signatures on that letter? You bet. Every member uh, of the Senate. Every member of the Senate. To support Started with Robert C. Byrd. Uh, to, su uh, to support uh, uh, foreign assistance, but specifically to support um, uh, global feeding programs. And now we have a great head of the World Food Program, David Beasley, former governor of yes. Carolina, that's just doing uh, you know, a, a, a remarkable job. But you know, there is some worry out there that America is pulling back, is disengaging uh, from the rest of the world. And this isn't a partisan comment, but you know, it's, it's, all, it's obviously been raised a lot with the president's views on NATO and the World Health Organization, and, but it predated him to some degree as well. It's a, it's, a, it's a trend. You were on the Armed Services Committee, you were chairman of the Intelligence Committee. You know that agriculture is dependent upon the rest of the world. Otherwise, uh, the income would be half of what it is now and everything else. What do you attribute to this kind of pulling back or this disengagement? I can remember uh, with Ted Stevens uh, being over at the NATO headquarters and remarking to me very early in the morning uh, when we saw plane after plane after plane after plane, of course, he's Air Force. Uh, I'm a Marine, we got bailing wire and he got the money, but uh, that's, a long, that's a long story. But he said, you know, we've been here 50 years. You would think at some point 
and that was some time ago, uh, at some point that we could uh, withdraw. The problem was uh, with pulling back or stepping back, and the key now is Afghanistan, uh, allegedly trying to make a peace agreement with the Taliban, which I think is ridiculous. But, uh, well, it's not ridiculous. We ought to make the effort, but I don't have any hope that's going to work out. Uh, they are a dedicated uh, terrorist group. So, okay, let's bring the troops back home. And, you know, folks back home really appreciate that. We're losing lives, Dan. I mean, we are in a continual war against terrorism uh, all over the globe. And so people that we love very dearly are coming back in a flag draped uh, coffin. And sometimes we, we don't think about that. I know the president does because uh, he tries to visit every one of them when they, when they come back. But I've always held the theory that if you pull back from an area that's strategically important and important from the standpoint of a peaceful region, uh, there's a void. And when there's a void, bad people fill it. And so I don't think America, I, I, I think we really ought to think about this because if we advocate or pull back from our position of being the leading country in behalf of freedom, uh, I think we're in trouble. You remember that John F. Kennedy, one of the great quotes, and I have it on my desk, I'll probably screw it up, but he said, uh, let every nation know whether friend or foe, that in terms of freedom and, and, and the exercise of XYZ rights, that America will stand uh, behind you. And uh, boy, that's, not, that, that's just not true today. And uh, I think it is in some circumstances, but there's a lot of talk about exactly what you talked about. And I think when you disengage, uh, I think there's more problems for you than uh, any trouble spots we're trying to work through. And I think Mike Pompeo believes that, uh, by the way, our fellow Kansan. Uh, I think the president is more of a populist and uh, I think he'd like to bring the troops back. He is bringing about half of them back from Afghanistan. We'll see. So what, what about uh, the, the elephant in the room in the world and that's China? So, uh, you know, I suppose if you look down the road in the future, China and the United States are the two dominant nations in the world. And uh, we sell, sell a lot of agriculture products to China. China does a lot of bad things uh, in terms of intellectual property theft and, and currency manipulation, other kinds of things. And yet we also need each other in other ways. You think we can have a relationship with China where we can both disengage, both engage on where we do agree and then find a way to deal with the differences? Or do you think we just, just pull out of this relationship? I don't think we can pull out. I think we have to remain engaged uh, regardless. Uh, the recent situation in Hong Kong is very troubling. Look out for Taiwan. That would be next if, uh, if they keep up this very aggressive military behavior. And what they're doing in the South China Sea, uh, they have the biggest, uh, I don't know if it's the biggest, but it's uh, one of the best, most modern uh, blue water Navy uh, in existence in the world today, not to mention what they're doing militarily. Uh, they're certainly involved in all of the, all the espionage and the spy stuff. Uh, so you worry about that when you see them with regards to Hong Kong, but they're just going to do what they're going to do. Now, Amar Alexander uh, took a group of us over to Beijing and we met with the uh, Iowa governor there who uh, has been uh, my Lord, Governor, about eight terms there in Iowa, and he is the ambassador. Uh, and so I was talking with the trade group that we met with, trying to preserve trade to 1.4 billion people, which has such an impact on price recovery for agriculture that, it, I mean, it's just amazing. And when we started that trade, soybeans, sorghum, wheat, corn, ethanol, so on and so forth, uh, 1.4 billion people, man, we were getting a lot of price uh, recovery all throughout uh, you know, rural America and agriculture. And then boom, you stopped that. And that was when we started in with these tariffs uh, with Mr. Navarro and, uh, and the president. Anytime you have a tariff, the first retaliation back is on ag. And that's why we got into this mess here now of uh, providing 28 no, it's $40 billion now over two years in direct payments to offset what has happened to us uh, with price with China. You remember the big hullabaloo we had when um, 
uh, President Carter had an embargo on Russia on wheat, and both you and I uh, tried very hard to get that lifted. It took it, it, it took us took a year to convince Reagan to lift the embargo, and he was going to the um, National Meeting of the Farm Bureau. So we figured that would be a good place for him to announce that because he did during the campaign. And uh, same kind of deal, if China is dependent on you for their food supply, uh, which they are to some extent, that's a better position for us. At least we have a relationship where we can talk about that. And uh, we're, um, I don't know where we are today with regards to that uh, first tranche, uh, stage one of the trade group. But I know, as you have said, uh, on the other side of the fence, you have uh, China being tremendously aggressive. Uh, that's led to uh, worry in Japan, Australia, uh, India, uh, we are trying to work together as best we can on the uh, national security or the world security standpoint to offset that. Uh, we'll have to see where that goes. Yeah, you know, it just, it strikes me that, uh, you know, it's like a, it's the best of times and the worst of times, but we have this pandemic now and, and from where, whatever the cause there was, and I think it's pretty clear it started in China, uh, the United States has suffered, looks to me like more than any other country in the world. It's getting worse, not better. And so um, it strikes me that uh, now is the time not to engage in, not to start a new Cold War, so to speak, even with all the problems we're going. This is a, it, it shows you this asteroid that's hit the, hit the earth, this, this pandemic is something we got to deal with both domestically and globally, or else we're going to have more of them in the future. And it could impact agriculture as much as any other. Well, you know, there's a lot of, you know, there, there are a lot of diseases that, uh, have come across, there's, you know, African swine fever, there, and then you have the so-called Spanish flu back in 1918. I know my dad had that, and uh, that started at Fort Riley, Kansas, by the way, and, uh, or at least in the United States, millions lost their uh, their life to that, so it, it is repetitive. Most of those are zoonic in nature, and that's why we have InBath out in Manhattan, Kansas, at K-State. Uh, that's going to be complete. I explain what NBAF is the National what, Bio Agriculture Facility. Yes. It used to be at Plum Island. Now it's in Kansas. And did you, uh, any, did you have anything to do with that, or is it just to happen? Just a chance. Just a chance. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. Figured. Um, but uh, but uh, but anyway, you're right. These these both public health pandemics that affect our health can affect agriculture also very very directly, and that's. It does strike me that the world has to cooperate to deal with these diseases because they don't stop at the country's borders. Well, what we're doing, what we're doing with MBAF right now is really getting the jurisdiction worked out. We have the Department of Homeland Security that if we have an attack on our food supply, we've had quite a few exercises on that. And it's, boy, <laughs> if that happens, it's, uh, it's going to be a dire situation. And so we try to get ahead of it. And uh, so I, I just think that... Uh, we ought to understand that and uh, at K-State and at MBAF uh, work up vaccinations, you know, hoof and mouth, all this kind of thing that, that go on. But uh, with this virus, I think we just have to keep on, keep on with social distancing and masks and everything else that everybody uh, agrees with. But uh, the, there is a controversy. And I don't, I think this is a false narrative. Sure, we have to reopen uh, the, the entire business community in this country. Uh, there's a lot of economic hurt there, and that's long-lasting. And uh, But on the other side, uh, we have to save lives. And uh, I don't know why this has to be different. Uh, there's a lot of things here. Uh, I would say the same thing about race, but I don't want to get into that right now, that we have a false narrative, and then our political parties tend to line up on either side. I wish we could get over that and uh, and work together. So, uh, okay, I'm going to ask you just a couple more questions. Uh, uh, but I, I got to ask you this one, and that is, is that, um, you know, got a, we got a presidential and congressional elections coming up. So if you were advising President Trump right now in terms of um, how he should, what he should be talking about, how he should be conducting his campaign, um, what would it be? Because right now, I don't think it looks very good for him. And so um, just from a partisan perspective, I don't know what, what people are thinking, but 
from my perspective, um, I'm not talking about as much substantive policy as I'm talking about um, uh, attitude as much as anything else. But regardless of that, if you were there, what recommendations would you make? Uh, well, the first recommendation I would make is to say, Mr. President, you ought to talk with Dan Glickman, who's a good friend of mine and, uh, you know, got a lot of common sense. Uh, if you listen to him, I'm sure it'd be okay. And then you could call up Joe Biden and say, uh, Joe, uh, you ought to listen to Pat Roberts. I know Joe, by the way. I mean, he was on foreign relations. He was ranking when I was chairman of the Intel Committee, and I wouldn't let him have some stuff he wanted. So... And he, I think, actually helped me in the 2014 campaign. He wouldn't admit that now, if he uh, would remember it. But, uh, okay, advice to the president. Well, you never get hurt by what you don't say. Uh, I think he is not going to give up tweeting. Um, I think this has been, despite all of the hoorah and the noise and the partisanship uh, during his administration, I think it's the most productive we have been or I have been in terms of getting things done with getting stuff on my wall with a, a bill and um, my name on it and his and then a pen. Uh, I've got them from all, I've got 34 of those. I'm, I'm very proud of that. That's staff, by the way, that does such a super job. And, um, and then also the people that you work with. So I'll tell you what, why don't you advise uh, President Trump and I'll work on Joe. I'll see if I can get in the basement. Yeah, I'm, I, I'm not sure that uh, the president's going to call me for m very much advice, but if, if he does call me, I'll, I'll certainly give him the advice that you gave me. It's, it's the only advice I gave the president uh, was the first week when Kellyanne got me in, and, uh, I, and that was when it was very open. And uh, so I was sitting on the couch. He said, please have a seat. And he was dealing with other people, and he says, come sit by me. And he says, how can I be of help to you? And I said, save crop insurance. He said, what's crop insurance? And so I went into all that. It was the first issue of importance all over the country. Uh, Stabenow and I had gone all, all around the country. First thing, save and improve crop insurance. Uh, some guy named Roberts and some guy named um, from Nebraska helped me out, Bob. Kerry. Bob Kerry, uh, yeah. That was the Kerry Roberts bill in Nebraska and the Roberts Kerry bill in in Kansas. Uh, that saved us. Uh, I don't know how many different uh, seasons we go through with farmers going through tough times. So uh, he said, well, why do we need to save it? I said, well, your administration and its uh, first shot at a budget has, uh, has cut crop insurance, uh, especially out in, in my country, Kansas, Nebraska, Oklahoma, Texas. So he hits the phone and, uh, and the operator says, uh, yes, I'm his president. And he said, uh, Mahoney. And so six seconds later, why, you know, Mick comes on there and uh, he's the budget chairman at, at that time, or no, let's see, he's OMB. And so uh, he says, yes, Mr. President. He says, I got, uh, I got, uh, and he forgot my name. And so he said, farm guy here. And so for the first two years with the president, I was farm guy. Hey, you can't get any better than that. So if you didn't know my name, well, fine, I'll take farm guy. And so he says, well, sir, we're not cutting it. We're reforming it. And uh, I don't know who's receiving this at this particular time, but I had a choice to make uh, to offset the advice uh, by his, uh, his dutiful, uh, you know, guy down at OMB. But, uh, uh, and he, you know, that came from the Freedom Caucus and it came what they like to do and primarily on food stamps, but a lot of other programs too, and certainly crop insurance. And uh, I said, uh, Mr. President, that's bullshit. Uh, we're cutting it. And the things that he has mentioned will end crop insurance and in a great swath of American agriculture. And these people brought you to the dance. You could talk about workers voting for you, but it was farmers, ranchers and growers that brought you home. And I said, we can't do that. So he says, Mick, he says, yes, sir. Don't cut crop insurance. Yes, sir. So uh, I had a conversation with him later at the White House one time. He says, every time I'm up against you, you just, you're a nice guy, but you're, uh, you, you just win all the time. You're making me feel so bad. So that was the first thing with the president. And since I won on that one, uh, I haven't tried, I'm not going to tell him what to do or give him advice. He has his, uh, you know, people around him and, um, 
I think he's a populist. He's not the first populist. He won't be the last. Okay, so I want to ask you uh, uh, a question about humor in politics. Uh, Washingtonian Magazine, I think, what was it, three years in a row, said you were the funniest man in politics. I I thought it was the funniest looking man, but then I had to read it much more carefully. Yeah, I understand that. You were the funniest man in, in politics, but you know, you, you've got this kind of uh, self-deprecating, sometimes acerbic sense of humor, but people like you. And I'm just, I'm just wondering about that quality of humor and whether it's made a difference in your life, especially in the legislative process. Yeah, it's made a big difference. Uh, my daughter, on my 80th birthday, uh, you were there, she led off... Um, was over at the Capitol Hill Club, and she led off, and she says, well, I'm Ashley Roberts, and I'm the, the daughter of Pat Roberts. The first thing you have to understand about my dad is that he's a ham. Uh, you have some of those qualities as well, and that's why we get along. And if you can use a sense of humor... remember, I, I, I'm Jewish, so they call it something else than a ham, but I, I still, I, I get it, okay? Yeah. <laughs> right. well, we can change that to oatmeal. Okay, all right, okay. There. Uh, this getting out of hand real quick. Um, But uh, I think if you have the ability to say something at the appropriate time when people are really at loggerheads, say, for instance, in your party conference, and in the Gingrich years, uh, I was able to do that. But I took second place when Al Franken came in. And Al Franken, uh, of course, he's a professional, you know, humorist. And uh, he walked right up to me and he says, you're Pat Roberts. He jabbed me on my shoulder here. And I said, yep. And he says, people tell me you're the funniest man in the Senate. I said, well, don't believe everything you people tell you. And uh, he says, well, I just want to let you know you're now number two. And I, I said, you know, that's right. Uh, you are the funniest. I'm, I'm the, uh, you know, I'm, you know, I'm the guy that's a, uh, a humorist. I'm not, I'm not funny. I'm, you know, whatever. And uh, so he says, uh, uh, you're quick. We used to ride on a, on that little uh, trolley that goes back and forth between the Senate and the, uh, and the Senate office buildings. And uh, he was in that same office uh, complex here in the Hart building. And he would imitate uh, Bob and Ray, which was a very unusual uh, radio show, and his favorite comedian of all time, which was Jack Benny. So the door would open, I'd be reading something, and all of a sudden there, you know, there he'd be, and he would say, um, you again, just like the Jack Benny show. You and I know that. Everybody else probably doesn't, but at any rate. And uh, then I would always put my hand up here and say, now cut that out, you know, and so we would go that back and forth. Uh, I'm sorry what happened to him happened. I think that was... uh, uh, tragic, but uh, it, you know, that's the way it is today. Well, who, uh, as you look around in your colleagues, who else do you think are people who uh, respect and love humor? And it doesn't have to be telling jokes. It may be the same kind of humor that you're talking about. But maybe there are a lot of people there that I always thought that you know that uh, there there was the um, uh, I think it was Eisenhower who talked about laughter and humor was the thing that would right. keep the country stitched together. And uh, it strikes me that a lot of the humor in our society today is mean humor, not uh, it's abusive, it's bullying humor. But um, and that's not you. But uh, who 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 else in this? Well, John Kennedy, uh, who is a member <clears throat> from uh, Louisiana, um, I think I hope. And uh, but he comes up with the darndest sayings, and he's on TV a lot. Uh, I was on TV 47 out of 52 weeks one time when I was chairman of the Intel Committee, but it wasn't a humorous situation. And I enjoyed saying, I'm sorry, that's classified. I can't talk about that. I was probably the only one that ever did that and said a good talk about it. But uh, you sort of get hooked on that, and then people always have you on on television. And then on the other side, uh, you get some... uh, Oh, some feedback by some in the state and others. Uh, you know, we need you know we need some guy that's serious, not you know somebody's always telling jokes. Uh, 
but John is able to defuse uh, some tough situations uh, when we have them in the Senate. And then, um, oh gosh, I could think of about four or five more that have that capability. But uh, in today's world of politics, you better be careful what you say. Uh, Amber over here, who is my uh, chief of staff now that Jackie is uh, gone, but both, both Jackie and Amber, they used to surround me with staff, one in front of me, one in back of me, and give me a phone and act like I'm on the phone so that I wouldn't talk to any of the press because I have this straight-faced, you know, humor kind of thing, and things just pop into my head. And boy, today you get yourself in a hell of a lot of trouble doing that. So I try to not, I've sort of faded from the scene. Yeah, I remember uh, just personally, you and my dad really struck up a, a nice friendship over the years. And a lot of that was because you could tell each other about any kind of story that today we probably couldn't talk about at all. Because my dad used to send me jokes uh, fax me jokes when I was in the Department of Agriculture and I had to buy a shredder because I got <laughs> if, if anybody read those jokes, I would be uh, gone from politics. But uh, he always enjoyed the fact that he could talk to you about anything and then, and then it, it, it would always end well because you were, you were not at each other's throats. And it just strikes me that that's a quality in politics that Bob Dole certainly had it. Alan Simpson certainly had it. Barney Frank was had a great sense of humor, you know, yes, and, and and so and and often the most successful people in politics are people who have that natural sense of humor. Well, I think that uh, probably Alan Simpson was the uh, was the champion. He had that Western brand of uh, of humor. I tried to imitate it. Uh, I remember that uh, roll call one time did a bio on the Kansas delegation <clears throat> and uh, they were talking about Bob Dole and his acerbic sense of humor. That was not exactly uh, complimentary. And then it turned to the rest of the delegation and it always started off with me because of the first district. And said, Roberts, however, uh, drinks the same water and sounds like Dole, but he is simply pleasantly irascible. So I sort of took that as uh, my guidepost. And then um, uh, there's a question here. Uh, who among your colleagues do you like working with on the other side of the aisle? You mentioned Stabenow. Well, uh, that's, you know, that's a given. Um, oh, gosh. Manchin, of course, he's easy to work with. Um, I'm going to do it by committee here. About everybody on the Democrat side on the committee, some of which... Uh, well, Klobuchar ran for president, uh, but um, they may be very strident on the floor, but on the Ag Committee, everybody behaves, and uh, we just get along. Uh, John Thune, I respect him a lot. I call him Gary Cooper because uh, he reminds me of Gary Cooper. Nobody knows who Gary Cooper is anymore, but I call him Coop, and both of us finally realized that wasn't anybody in the room that knew what the hell we were talking about when I called him Coop. So we finally gave that up. Um, John Bozeman is a Republican. He's a great guy. Uh, I've got a lot of friends on the R side, but the Democrat side as well. You know, I, I always felt that when somebody was passing in the hall or when maybe they're coming in to vote, maybe you're leaving, I'd always say, hey, how you doing? Good morning. And I did that to um, um, Amber helped me out. Uh, it took me two sessions, uh, it, it, uh, probably 12 years before he finally spoke back. Oh, Bernie Sanders. Yeah, Ber how can I forget Bernie Sanders? Uh, but Bernie, you know, would walk down and I'd say, good morning, Bernie, how you doing? He'd look at me in a strange way and go, oh. And I, I, I made it a personal goal that, by God, I was going to get him to say good morning if, if it, you know, killed me. And... Uh, I think it was way in my second term and he was on the little train going over and he looked up and he said, who are you? And I said, what do you mean who I am? I said, I'm Senator Pat Roberts, I'm a colleague. He said, but why are you, every morning you say good morning to me. I said, well, I, that's, that's Kansas, that's what we do, Bernie. And he said, oh, well, good morning. And from that time on, it was Pat and Bernie, see? So I got along with him. So you might have been Secretary of Agriculture if he was the, the president of the United no States. 
No, no way. No. Doing All right. Well, I won't go further than that. So one last thought. What thought? What's next on your life agenda after uh, January of two, January 2021? Um, I think I'll go to Nashville and write country western songs. Okay. Uh, that'd be my top uh, top thing. That, however, doesn't fit into Frankie's uh, uh, plan. Uh, I don't know. Uh, you're not even supposed to talk about it, according to the ethics thing. Uh, I'd, I'd, we'll figure something out. Uh, if I could be of help in some way to agriculture, and obviously Kansas, uh, that would be the thing I'd want to do. But uh, I might want to take about six months. Uh, this has been a long haul. Um, I came here 67, I was uh, the chief of staff for Frank Carlson. That was the same year that uh, Martin Luther King was assassinated. Um, a rough time, Washington was on fire. The Marines were on the Capitol steps with sandbags and real bullets. I could hardly get home. I was driving a little uh, Volkswagen. Um, took me about, I drove on the sidewalks. There were bullets flying around and tear gas. It was a mess. Uh, <clears throat> people today don't realize that we've gone through these things uh, before. That does give me hope that we can get past the current situation. Uh, but that was uh, that that was tough times. Uh, I had thought that uh, the definition of a bachelor was a person who never made the same mistake once, and uh, that sounds like your dad talking. But uh, I met Frankie across the hall and. Uh, 50 years later, uh, we just had our 50th anniversary, 51 coming up, and I'm just thinking, where have all the years gone? I would have never dreamed in my high school days or college days that I would have the privilege of being a U.S. Senator. I met a lot of wonderful people. It's been a wonderful uh, you know, career, and I've enjoyed it very much, as well as your wonderful friendship, Dan. Well, I would say this. Uh, above the Speaker's Chair in the House of Representatives is this Great quote by Daniel Webster. And basically at the end of the quote, he, he admonished people to do something worthy to be remembered. And I used to look at that every time I'd come into the house floor. I didn't know Daniel Webster, I know you did. But be that as it may, I think that you have honored Daniel Webster's quote over the years and we're proud of you in Kansas and I think the country ought to be proud of you as well. Pat. Dan, thank you very much, that's high praise indeed. I didn't. I wasn't here when Daniel Webster served. I, I, kid, I did come in with Calvin Coolidge, who, by the way, was silent Cal. You just walk in and talk to him, and he'd nod his head up and down if you if do what he you know, want to do and go that way if you didn't. Uh, that was certainly easier to work with. Well, okay. Well, good. We'll put that in your memoirs, your relationship with Coolidge, Bernie Sanders, and uh, the other people you talked about today. Thank and, Mel, and Mel Gleckman. <laughs> yeah, okay. Thank you all. Thanks for everybody out there for listening. And uh, thanks to Pat Roberts and thanks to the former members of Congress for putting this together.